Hear the word of God from Judges chapters 6 through 8. This is a selection of verses. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Now to chapter 7. Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Harad. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, Anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, There are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. If I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to, as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, 
With the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300, who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Purah, and listen to what they are saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Purah, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley, thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. To verse 19. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars. Grasping, their torches, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow, they shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Beth Shittah, toward Zerorah, as far as the border of Abel-Meholah, near Tabath. Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they seized the waters of the Jordan as far as beth Bara. They also captured two of the Midianite leaders. And now to chapter 8. The Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And he said, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was the custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. They answered, We'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment, and each of them threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, not counting the ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, or the chains that were on their camels' necks. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. All Israelite prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church family. Good to see all of you today. Looking beautiful. We're going to continue our series in the book of Judges. And guys, I'm just going to be honest. We're going to just dive right into it. We're going to go right away deep into it because there's a lot of text to cover. Three chapters. Um, the story of Gideon is actually the most famous, probably one of the most famous stories in all the book of Judges. It actually has the most dedicated verse-wise out of all the Judges. So Gideon is the most time spent out of all the Judges on any of the Judges. So there's a lot of text here that we're going to be diving into. So we're just going to get right into it. Sound good? So Gideon was the weakest in the family from an insignificant clan from the tribe of Manasseh. These are Gideon's words, not mine. I'm not trying to trash him or his clan. I don't know anything about him or his clan. 
He was living during a time where the Midianites were raiding the land like locusts. Judges 6 starts with a very common phrase for us now. It says, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. How many times have we seen that so far in the book of Judges? Now, I want to remind you guys, it's only been six chapters, but we've seen it multiple times. Now, it feels like, what's wrong with these people? Remember, this is over a long period of time. The book of Judges is over 400 years. So it's not like one year later they did this again. Usually it's generational. You with me so far? So the Lord gave them over to their enemies. Over and over again, the Israelites get themselves caught in this vicious cycle. Forget God. Adopt the Canaanite practices. Get overwhelmed. Call out for salvation. A judge rescues. And it happens again. This time the Midianites were raiding, kind of like the Vikings did to, the, to England back in the day. They would know around when the harvest time would be, and they'd come crashing in with their camels to take all the produce and livestock, which I love that they said they come in on the camels. I don't know why they thought that was important. I don't know if chemical, camels are a technical advantage. Earlier, like, I can see how chariots are a technical advantage, but camels, I'm kind of like confused by, but okay. They come in on the camels, and they raid the villages, and they raid the towns, and they raid the Israelites, and they take everything, all the livestock, all the produce that they worked so hard for, this land that was full of milk and honey, all of a sudden became a place of desolation, and the Israelite people now had to hide in caves and in mountains just to survive. They were given a land where they could cultivate and produce, to make civilizations, to make cities, all of a sudden the land couldn't produce because everything was stolen, and they regressed and living in as wanderers in the wilderness again, just to survive. Now, one quick aside that I want to throw in here. It's clearly evident in Scripture that consequences come after sin. It happens over and over again. Sin can lead to tragedy and suffering. But it's also true that tragedy and suffering is not, has to not only be caused by one's sin or failure. Case in point, the book of Job. My point is that there are often patterns or normal rhythms in the Bible, but it isn't every time. Those consequences often follow sin and bad decisions in this world. The answer is yes. But do we also see bad results without sin and bad decisions in this world? The answer is yes. Do you guys hear me? So what you cannot do that is to see a result. You can look out and say there is suffering, there is consequence. You cannot look at that and say there must be grievous sin that led to that. But there is a truth, a rhythm to this world that does say, if you look at the book of Proverbs and elsewhere, that often sin and bad decisions will lead to suffering and grief. So you have to understand the context of the situation. And in this case, the Israelites were blatantly going against their covenant promises because they were reaping the results of their sin. So then God calls the rescuer. Judges 6.12, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. I love this. I mean, I love this so much. How amazing would it be for the angel of the Lord to come up to me and say, the Lord is with you, Lawrence, you mighty warrior. I'm like, who, me? Oh, you shouldn't have. Oh, gosh. Stop it. I mean, how amazing would that feel? That'd be so incredible for God to look at you and say, hey, mighty warrior. I mean, I'm just imagining, I'm just already, I'm like, oh, that's awesome. And I love this story because when God first calls Gideon, he gives Gideon immediately a title. The angel speaks to God, and he gives him this title. He says, mighty warrior. Now remember, Gideon is hiding alongside all the other Israelites who are scared to death of the Midianites. They were scared of camels. 
and they're hiding out in the caves, hiding out in, in the mountain clefts. They were hiding out because the Midianites were more powerful, more numerous. But then he says, calls them mighty warrior. And it's a huge title. And in this text, you can see that he's honestly not a mighty warrior. He's out of his element. God doesn't come to him after he's defeated large armies. He's not like this Samson figure. Later on, we'll see Samson, who's super strong and can beat up a thousand people with a jawbone of a donkey. He comes across much more of a fearful character. So God's calling him a mighty warrior, and this address, this address is not saying who he is, it's saying who he could be. This is a calling that God placed upon Gideon. Not what he already is. And God is speaking to Gideon and calling him to a new title and to a new name. Now, I want you to get this about God. God does this so often in the Bible. He calls them to new places. When he called Peter the rock, he's calling him to be the rock and the foundation. And I want you to hear this very clearly. He equips the called. Doesn't call the equipped. Do you guys hear that? In other words, what God does all throughout the Bible, especially in this story of Judges, he's saying, I'm going to call you, Gideon, to something bigger than you are, something bigger than you think you are right now, something bigger than you can't even comprehend that you can be. You're fearful, you're hiding, the Midianites scare you, but I'm going to call you mighty warrior, and I'm going to give you all you need to be the mighty warrior. You might not feel like it now, but you're going to get all you need for the journey. Waypoint Church, I want, to, we want you to hear this very well from me right now. Some of you guys are sitting here, and God's calling you things that you can't even imagine. You're sitting here, you're thinking, I'm not a mighty warrior. I'm not a mighty missionary. I'm not a mighty evangelizer. I'm not a, I can't be a mighty mother. I can't be a mighty father. I can't be a mighty worker. I can do all these things. You're saying all these things that God might be calling you to do, but you, can, you don't feel equipped. You don't feel mighty in any way. But God's calling you to do mighty things. Can I tell you something? He equips the called. He'll call you to the journey. He'll give you all that you need to be a mighty mother, to be a mighty father, to be a mighty evangelizer, to be a mighty whatever. He did it for Gideon. He's going to do it for you. See, the key is not that you think that you're mighty already, not that you think, oh, look, I'm arrived. Of course, God calls me a mighty warrior. It's to know that God's calling is so much more powerful, and He gives you all that you need for the journey. So, Gideon is called. He's called to be a judge, a rescuer, a mighty warrior. And the rest of the chapter 6 has Gideon, this angel, with this interesting interplay. Gideon is testing and challenging. And honestly, most people put him down for this. And I get that. I get that he's, he's testing God. He's challenging the angel. And most people are putting him down for this. And I like to believe that if, if God came to me and the angel of the Lord came to me and said, Lawrence, you mighty warrior, I want you to do this. I'm going to be like, yes, I'm in. Whatever you want. I'll take on the camels and the chariots and whatever. I like to believe that would be my response. But how Gideon responded, it kind of just feels a little more real, doesn't it? Gideon to me, it feels like this is God who's like, okay, God, I, I believe you, I, I hear you, but can you help me out a little bit? For me, the Gideon situation, and I'm not just, I hope I'm saying this right, it just feels more human, right? Gideon's like, God, God, you want me to do something? You want me to lead my people? You want me to be a rescuer? You want me to fight against the Midianites? You want me to be a mighty warrior? I, I, I'm hearing this. I'd love to do that, but um, it's a little scary. These are big, I keep on saying, these are big camels, they scare me too. I want no piece of the camels. And 
for me, I'd love it if God called me to something big. I'd love to be able to say immediately, yes, I'll do whatever you call me to do. Go wherever you call me to go. And we want to say that. But Gideon's response just feels more real to me, more human to me. It's, I believe, but I'm struggling a little. Help me out more. I kind of liken it to the centurion prayer, which I found to be the most beautiful prayer in the Bible. The centurion prayer in the New Testament says, I believed, help my unbelief. I feel like getting seen this. I said, I want to believe, I want to believe, I just need some help. And what does God do? I love this. God is not like, oh, you need more proof? Off with you. He says, okay, I'll help you out. I'll perform these things and I'm telling you, I'm not saying that Gideon did the right thing. I'm not saying Gideon shouldn't have needed it. He shouldn't have. The people shouldn't have needed God to, to prove himself again. He's proven himself over and over again. They should never have needed it. They should never have asked for it. They should never have fallen away. But in this moment, in this time, in the realness of it, Gideon needed help. And God reached him, spoke to him, and his grace gave him help to believe. Gave him, Gideon all that he needed to be called mighty warrior. Now, I know some people are going to say, well, Jesus was tempted, and he said that we shouldn't test the Lord our God. Isn't that what Gideon did? Didn't he test God by doing this? And once again, my statement isn't that what Gideon did was right or perfect. My statement is that it was just human. And yes, he shouldn't have tested God, but God met Gideon in his weakness. And it it also goes further to show us that Jesus was fully perfect. And when he was called, when he was called to to test God, he didn't, and he ended up being the fuller, more perfect judge because he didn't need a sign. You with me? I want you to see that God works with even a little faith. He works in spite and through doubt. God doesn't need huge mounds of faith that we think we need to muster up. I want you to see in the Bible, all that is needed is the faith of a mustard seed. Sometimes we try to build up this idea that God, I'll do anything. God, I'll conquer everything. God, I'll go anywhere. God, I'll do anything. But God is just calling you to just take a step. Sometimes we want to conquer up and do these big visions for God. God says, no, no, I'll give you faith enough just to do a step. I used to complain when I was a young kid. I used to complain to my mom. Mom, it's, you know, she, I still remember this day. We were visiting Korea. I was in middle school. And she wanted to go on top of a mountain to see this beautiful view. I'm like, oh, go on top of a mountain to see a view seems like the worst idea ever. Like, walking up steps to say, oh, how pretty. I'll take a picture. I'll look at a picture. But that's what my mom wanted to do. And she said the way to conquer a whole bunch of steps to climb up a mountain is what? One step at a time. That's the way it is with most of life. There's so many big tasks that you feel that you want to do. You want to memorize a piano piece. You want to, you know, do well in school. You want to do all these. It's always one step. And God, my mom would always just say, Lawrence, just do one step. That's all you have to do. That's all I'm asking you to do, Lawrence. Just take one step. That's all it takes. And I can't tell you that what God is calling you to do, what tasks may seem big, you might, you might think God's calling you to do so much to, to travel to the ends of the earth or to raise a godly family or to be faithful at work or to be a person of integrity in a hard culture, a person of purity in a difficult culture. And it seems large tasks. But can I tell you, God's called you to step out one step in faith. Take one step. Can I tell you that sometimes it feels so big to walk away from the sins of your past, to go away from addictions that you've struggled so long with, to forgive others that have hurt you so bad, to overcome trauma that you've experienced. But God's called you to have faith for one step. Not to conquer the whole thing on your own. Not to conquer the camels and the chariots on your own. But he's called you to take one step in faith. He's giving you the faith for one step. Will you take it?
In Judges 7, Gideon takes his little faith and his call and he gathers the fighting men to go against the Midianites. And then God whittles down the army, which just like, seems ridiculous, but that's what God wants to do. Gideon has his huge task. The conquering army, the ones who've been raiding nonstop, fight them off. But God says, you know, you have too many men. You know, people might think, oh, because Gideon's really good at fighting, or because he's a mighty warrior, because he's cunning, that that's how you won. So let's whittle down the men. So the passage says God takes out any of the army who's afraid. He says, anybody who's afraid, who's fearful, go ahead and send them home. Mind you, everybody should be a little afraid. It's war. Like, people die. You should be a little afraid. It's killing. It's death. It's, it's fighting against a superior army. It's camels. <laughs> Deuteronomy chapter 20 actually says for the Israelite people, to, if they're fighting against a, a, a foreign army, if they're fighting against, Deuteronomy chapter 20 actually says, send home people who are afraid to fight. It actually says that. If you look at your army, if the people are trembling, you know, like, like this image of like knees shaking, you know, if, they, if they're trembling, go ahead and send them home. If they're afraid, because they should know that God is the one fighting for them. They don't need to tremble. So God shrinks down the army and then he does it some more. I mean, the weirdest thing he does, he does it by the way they drink water. Right? Now, there, I don't think there's anything deeply spiritual about this. If there is, you can, you can let me know. You tell me what, what commentaries you've read, how, you get, how deeply spiritual we're going to go with this here. But it's a fun thing to look at. So let's pretend you went out marching on a hot day and you get a source of fresh, clean drinking water. Right? So you guys are out, remember, mind you, in the arid place. Right? And all of a sudden you're like, whew, I'm happy carrying this pack, my spear, shield. I'm, I'm hot, I'm tired. You're thirsty, there's fresh water. How do you drink it? Right? So I'm going to give you two choices. Right, you have no cups, you don't have a water bottle, you don't have a life straw, you don't have all that kind of stuff. Right? So you have two choices how you're gonna drink the water. All right? Are you gonna scoop it into your hand and go like that? Right? Or do you just get down and go put your head into the water and go like that? Right? Option one, option two. I'm just curious. Raise your hand if you're option one. Raise your hand if you're option two. No option two is okay. <laughs> a lot faster. Option one, you guys would be fighting in the battle. But in this instance, it's only 300 people left over. Now, once again, I'm not saying that God's judging you. I'm not saying the option one people are better than the option two people. They might be a little more hygienic. I feel like back in the day, I feel like this is, this is an interesting set of culture and times, right? We now, most, most people choose option one. Back in the day, more people chose option two. Do you guys not find that interesting? No? Just me? Okay. The point is, God whittled down the army using random means to make one point, and one point so vividly clear that no one could miss it. The point is, God rescues. God fights the battles. That we, Gideon can be called a mighty warrior, not because he's powerful, but because God is more powerful. Guys, I'll tell you this. I think way too often we try to live our lives. Oh, once again, let me tell you that um, I think God just has an awesome sense of humor. He does this thing where he makes it so that in the people, like, why, why, why use water? Why use how you drink water? He could have done anything. He could have flipped a coin or he could have done whatever. He chose the way they did that. Left-handed, right-handed people. Uh, you know, people who sleep on their sides or on the back. But he chose this. And I love the fact that he chose this because I think he's making a statement that he's like, I'm just going to be a little funny. I'll let you laugh later on. I'm like, I love that about God. 
But ultimately, what God is doing is making sure we don't miss the big point that God rescues. Guys, can I tell you this? I think way too often we just try to live our lives that make sense to our own abilities, and we don't trust God to work wonders and then live lives on the edge. Let me say that again. I think way too often we live lives that make sense to our own abilities and our own capabilities, and we don't often attempt to live bold lives that doesn't make sense apart from God. Does that make sense? Are you with me so far? Are you following? See, often God doesn't get the glory for your life because your life looks like what, what one would expect from you. And the question I want to ask is, are you living in such a manner that when people look at your life, they say, oh, that must be God? Do you live in such a way where people look at your life, do you say, oh, that's got to be God because that, well, that just does not make sense? Or do you live in such a way like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. That's what they, that's what they should about, that's how they should about live. Please hear me well, this isn't meant to be a guilt trip upon you. I'm not saying this to add a guilt question upon you to carry more burden for what you're not doing. That is not my attempt today. That is not my heart. I want you to hear that. I'm not trying to add more to your stressful life. I don't want you to be like, oh, now this guy's making me feel guilty for what I have. Please hear my heart. That's not what I'm saying. This is me saying to you is, what is the source and means of accomplishing the life you're called to live? What do you rely upon to live the life you live? Do you rely on your own skill and your own ability to navigate this life? Do you rely on your own capacity? Do you do things only based on that decision? What is, what is my capacity and my own skill and strength? Because if that's the case, then all the anxiety and the fear and the pressure is all on you. It's all built up on you. But if you're like Gideon and you only have an army of 300 and you're facing the Midianites, your only choice and your only source is God. Nothing else can be expected from you. My people, raising, I want you to hear this, raising godly children is a huge task. Loving others is a huge task. Sharing the gospel to the edge of the earth is a huge task. Engaging justice and is a huge, enacting justice, engaging justice is a huge task. Living in gospel unity and community is a huge task. And to do all that well, guys, we can do little bits of it, kind of, based on our own power, but to really live out these things, that's beyond us. That's beyond us as humans. Can I just tell you, give you an example of this, and I'm not trying to lift up anybody or put down anybody, but I know people who are in a very difficult season of life decide, you know what, you know what I'm going to do right now? I'm going to go ahead and foster children too. Kids who have no parents, I'm going to go ahead and love them and welcome them in. And that seems so big, and you look at them like, how could you possibly do that? It's the only God. Only God. And this is not a statement to those who are not fostering children that you're not doing enough because God, God is calling each and every one of you to do something. And it doesn't mean you have to foster. I'm not saying that. Please hear me very well. What it means is will you live not reliant upon your own power and only able to do what your capabilities allow you to do, but will you live boldly to take on a huge task that only God can empower you to do? Does that make sense? Because way too often we just live what we're able to do and instead of relying on the power of God to make us live lives that look totally different from what the world expected to look like. We need God the way Gideon did to accomplish any of the tasks before us. Will you live up to those tasks and calling to be a mighty warrior? 
Judges 7, 2 says, the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver many into their hands, or Israel boasts against me. My own strength has saved me. My people, may we as people always take on the task that is bigger than us, so the world can never say that it was our own strength that saved us. Now, notice what they do. Very simply, they, they go. They went down to the Midianite camp as the Lord commanded them. We see Gideon divided his army into three companies. They went down in the middle of the night. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars. They shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon, which I find humorous because they didn't carry a sword. Right? That's what they shouted, though. They shouted, a sword. I was like, but they weren't carrying swords, right? They said very clearly they're carrying a jar and a trumpet. No swords. But it didn't matter because when the Midianites heard the noise, they saw the flames and the torches, they fled in fear, then they turned on one another. The trumpets blew and they turned on one another. By the end of the chapter, Israel is pursuing the fleeing Midianites. This chapter gives us a total reversal. The Gideon at one point was paralyzed with fear. And then at the end of the chapter, we find him worshiping. We see Israel and Gideon terrified and afraid, but by the end of the chapter, it's Midian and their allies that are terrified and afraid. We find Israel at one point oppressed, but now they're victorious. Israel is facing an impossible situation, but that did not mean they gave up. They didn't just sit there idly waiting for a miracle. It's in their weakness that they went, knowing even though they're insufficient, knowing they only had 300 men, knowing that they're going against camels. They pursued and they attacked. It's teaching us that when God says that he'll make it, so we don't have to boast in our own power and our own might, then we are free to face the challenge that God calls us to. We're expected to obey God's call, to obey his word, and to depend on him. Where in your own life are you relying on your own strength? Where do you try to avoid vulnerability, inconvenience, discomfort? Where do we try to hold on to our own time and our resources or think that we're, we have a right and we can refuse and can't be corrected? Where do we rely on ourselves and make us stronger instead of God? I want you to understand, God, it's, that it's his strength that is made perfect in our weakness. And we need to go to him. This is where Gideon goes wrong. He forgets who he is later on and who God is. After the battle and defeat of the Midianites, the Israelites receive rest and rescue. I love that. Those two words. They receive rest and rescue. But then they forget. Gideon in particular is symbolic of all the rest of the people. He forgets his humble beginnings. And you see this fleshed out in chapter 8. There are three short scenes I just want you to point you to in chapter 8 that shows the fall of Gideon. First scene, verses 1 through 17, Gideon is passing through these Israelite settlements. He's passing through Ephraim and Peniel and, and Gideon and his men. Remember, that they, they just had major success in the battlefield. The Midianites are running away from them. Right? He's become a national savior. The people are rejoicing. He's rescuing the people, but he's not treated that way. So in chapter 8, as he approaches his own people, he, he's exhausted. These are Israelites. And Gideon and his men, they're exhausted from battle. They're pursuing the Midianites. And then in verse 4, the kings, um, in verse 4, people, he asked the people from Succoth to feed his men. But in verse 5, they refused to help. They refused to give hospitality. Verse 8, Gideon asked the people from Penuel to feed his men. And they did the same thing. They were afraid. They were afraid of the Midianites coming back and retaliating. They were afraid of the, maybe if, if, the, if, if they don't succeed, if, if Gideon doesn't succeed, maybe the Midians will just go after them, not us, if we don't take them in. But Gideon's angry. How dare you? They don't support him at all. So what does Gideon do? He basically says to them, oh, I'll be back. And I'm going to come back for you. 
And Gideon then follows through, finishes off the Midianites, and then verse 12, he takes these kings as prisoners. But that's not the focus of this text. The focus of the text is in the conflict Gideon has with his own people, the Israelite settlement. In verse 16, he goes to suck it, and he says he taught them a lesson. He literally tortures them. These are his own people. He doesn't kill them, but suffering he inflicts is severe. He says he took thorns and briars and taught them a lesson. This is no light punishment. Gideon tortures his own people. They does it in verse 17. Does it again to the people in Penuel. He's enraged. And guys, for me, I can almost hear Gideon saying, do you know who I am? I'm the mighty warrior. See where we've come so far. There's no way I'm the mighty warrior. Then relying on God, but now then after success on the battlefield, you can almost hear him say, who do you think you are? You turned me away? I'm the mighty warrior. And he punishes them. And this is the beginning of a sad, sad story here that plays out in Judges chapter 8. In verse 6, he's, he's the weakest. My clan is the weakest. I'm the lowest in my clan. How could I do anything? To now this idea of, do you know who I am? I'm coming back for you. God, do you see the danger in your own life? Do you see how God's provided so much in your life where you might have started off humbly, but he gives you so much, and then you decide, oh, well, well, maybe it was my, my good decisions. Maybe it was how smart I am. Maybe it was how good I am. Maybe it was how hard I worked. Like, I got all this. Maybe I am the mighty warrior. There's a blindness here. And this is sadness to the state of Gideon and the state of the people. And it's just all too familiar, isn't it? Scene two. Gideon captured these kings. And I'm going to kind of make this a little faster. But after he captures these kings, he, he's ruthless. And he's, he, uh, what we don't find, what we hear later on, actually, as we find out in the, as we read this passage, that Gideon's brothers were actually murdered or assassinated by the Midianite kings at some point. You don't know exactly when that happens. So he's enraged. He's angry. And he goes after, in such a way, these kings that you often wonder, is he fighting for justice or rage? Is it revenge that he seeks or is it justice that he seeks? And if you read this narrative, you see that that's what he's doing. He's fighting out of rage. And what he does, actually in the end, he gets, his, he gets his children to end up killing the kings to show his power and his dominance and his demeaning of these kings. Then we go to scene three, and I'm going to take a little more time. I kind of skipped over scene two a little bit. But scene three is we see verses 22-35. starts off, the Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson, because you saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And so these, the, the Israelites were saying, dude, Gideon, you need to be our king. We, we rule over us. And Gideon appropriately replies so beautifully, so well. He says, no, I'm not going to rule over you. That's the right answer. Um, the gods are ruler over us. So I'm not going to rule over you. Which is so right. But the facts don't match up to what he said. He said the right answer. Because I think he knew that to be the right answer. But his heart didn't match up to what he said. In fact, in verse 23, when he says the Lord is king, that's the last time the Lord's name is actually recorded coming out of Gideon's mouth. It seems like the, Gideon forgets who the Lord is, and so though he forgets who he is. He doesn't accept the title of king, but when it comes to life as he lived after that, that's basically what he does. He lives as king. What does he do? In verse 24, he taxes them. Right? Isn't that what he does? He, he takes their gold, he takes their spoils, he helps himself, to, as a king would, creating himself a royal treasury. Verse 29 through 30, he establishes a harem. 
He goes and takes wives as a king one, concubines. And then he has a son, and he named from one of his concubines, and his son's name is Abimelech. And most of you are like, oh, that sounds like a normal name. Like, yeah, that's not right, Abimelech. Sounds like a normal name. You don't think much of it, right? But do you guys actually know what the name Abimelech means? Anybody? Other than Danny? <laughs> Anybody know what the name Abimelech means? It literally means my father is king. Right? He names his son Abimelech. He's like, oh, I don't want to be king. No, nah, I'm too humble. Uh, I don't want to be king. I can't be king. God is your king. God is your king. But go ahead. I'm going to go ahead and tax you, though. I'm going to go ahead and build up a treasury. Uh, you know, I'm going to go have a harem. I'm going to have all the concubines and the wives I want. Oh, I'm going to go ahead and name my son Abimelech. So, <laughs> I'm not really king, but I'm kind of king. That's what Gideon's doing here, right? He goes even further. This is what's ridiculous. In verse 27, he makes an ephod. Exodus 28 tells us that an ephod is a priestly garment, a vest of sorts, that God instructed the Israelites to make for the high priest, and only for the high priest to wear, and only in the tabernacle. And so when Gideon goes and makes a gold ephod, this is a counterfeit ephod. What he's, and what he's saying is very clear. He's establishing his hometown as a rival place of worship. So he's using God to centralize power, to consolidate his own power, to capture the loyalty of the people so that people would come to him for direction and leadership. And you see at the end in verse 27, it says, it became a snare to them, meaning that he captured their allegiance, captured their affection. So here's a man who started life in chapter six. He was, he was tearing down idols. He was humble. He was acknowledging his weakness to now he actually built an idol. I think in the bottom line, Ralph Davis says this, is ever our danger after, that after being used of God in some way, we mouth humility, but we practice pride. I'm gonna say that one more time. It should be on the screen. Ralph Davis said this, it is ever our danger that after being used of God in some way, we mouth humility, but we practice pride. Can I tell you something? One of the scariest places where I see this happening over and over again is in the church. Mm-hmm. You guys hear me? One of the scariest places where I see this happening is where we can mouth humility but we see God moving and God doing incredible things and all of a sudden certain people can get full of pride and their head gets really huge. And they think, oh, it's because of their skill or their ability that God is doing mighty things. Can I tell you right now about people, I want you to hear this as a full confession from me. Do you know how susceptible I am to that? I am a sinner. I am a sinner. And thank God that I have a wife who's like, I'm gonna pop your bubble right now, Lauren, you're getting something special. But in all honesty, guys, I am so susceptible to that right there. And if I know I am, guys, can I tell you something else? It might be a shock to you, but so are you. So are you. It's so easy. It's so tempting when success happens, when you see God do incredible things, you think, ooh, okay, at first I was like, ooh, this is, I'm not, I'm not worthy, God, I can't do this. And all of a sudden, it happens, and you do it, and you're like, ooh, I did something good. And all of a sudden, it's successful, and it's working, and all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, I am pretty awesome. Yeah, I'm pretty cool. And what that leads to is you leads to setting yourself as king, as God, as idol maker. I mean, we see what Gideon did. We're like, I would never do that. But yes, we do all the time, don't we? 
It might not be as blatant as creating an ephod. It might not be as blatant as having a harem. It might not be as blatant as naming your kid Abimelech. But it's still there in our hearts when we start saying, well, look down at all those poor people. They're poor because they're not as smart as me. Do you hear me? Can I, I know that's, that's not about what just hits some of you. When we look at people who are struggling and think, it's because they're terrible, sinful people, not like me. My people can't just say this. It is by God's grace alone. Amen? We mouth humility, but we practice pride. That's what happened to Gideon. The people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God after that. In other words, God brought Gideon to a place of weakness, but Gideon forgets. He forgets that his clan was the weakest, that he was the least in his father's house. He forgets the welcome, outrageous grace of the Lord. You don't see weakness anymore. You don't see humility anymore. You don't see the dependence, the humility, know that he's held up by lavish love. Gideon forgets. In his success, he forgot. He was spoiled by success. And that's often how life disintegrates. Tim Keller in his judge's commentary makes this point. We often think that worst thing can happen is failure, but this is what Tim Keller says. He says, failure will bring its own set of baggage, but at least when we fail, it leaves us longing for a better savior. But success, Keller says, success is often the worst thing that can happen. Hold that quote, let me say that again. Failure will bring its own set of baggage, but at least when we fail, it leaves us longing for a better savior. But success, Keller says, success could sometimes be, is often the worst thing that can happen. The life of Gideon says success is the greatest trial of all. Success, and that's what, that's, that's the part of the story here is that Gideon enjoyed incredible success led to his downfall. My people, we live in a country that for the longest time, basically my whole life has been known as the most powerful country. I've seen nothing since my life. I've seen the economy go higher and higher. There are times where it went down, but times where they got up. I've seen people in this country that have been blessed, blessed in this country to be able to work hard. And if you work hard, that meant success. And these are all incredible blessings. And I thank God to be a part of this country that we're able to experience that. But can I tell you something? Success often, though, in this case, can lead to self-reliance can lead to a place where some of us in this country, the temptation for us is that, oh, it's because we're good, we're smart, we're strong, we're intelligent, we make good decisions, that all the success is a result of all of that. And we don't give glory to God. And we don't think we need God. My people, let the lesson of Gideon show you how desperately we are, how desperately in need we are for God. And let us not forget his lavish love that reached us, even in our lowest of places. His lavish love that called us to something different even when we couldn't see it for ourselves. His lavish love that allowed us to take one step of faith that could change the course of history. His lavish love that called us something bigger than we could ever imagine. He calls us beloved known, called to purpose. Let us not forget. And all of this points to ultimately one true reality as the book of Judges shows us that we are ultimately in need of a greater judge 
a greater rescuer, a greater king. We need Jesus. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your lavish love that you've called us to. Lavish love that calls us a different name. Lavish love that reaches us even in our doubts, even with just a little bit of faith that still questions and needs you. You reach us and you secure us and you call us to incredible things. But God, may we never forget your lavish love. You are our source. You are a good, good father. So as we partake in communion today, may we remember it is the work of Jesus and his grace alone that sustains us. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Can you hear me? Good. So if you didn't get the little pack, um, Raise your hand. We also have a gluten-free one too, so those are specific, so ask for that one and one of our ushers will get it to you. Um, This morning we will join with our Christian sisters and brothers around the world in participation of the Lord's Supper. This is a time for followers of Jesus, for those who have professed Jesus as Lord and Savior, to come together and reflect and remember the death and suffering of Jesus Christ, and the new covenant that we have in him. This morning during our prayer time, we did two things. When it, the prayer time that Eric led earlier. We asked God to search our hearts using Psalm 139 as, as the, the base, and we, and we confessed our sins to God and accepted his forgiveness. Now let's remember the new covenant that Jesus has made with us, that we are forgiven people, we are born again, we are new creations, we are people with a hope and a future, people of the real Savior, Jesus, the real King, Jesus. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread And we had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So please uh, remove the little top thing and, and take the bread. And as you take it, I want you to remember that this is the body of Christ that was broken for you. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this is the new co- this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup. This is the blood of Christ that was shed for you. Please join me in prayer. Father, we praise you that through all the failures of the Israelites, we've gone through Joshua, we did the Pentateuch a year and a half ago, we've gone through 
judges now. We're about halfway through, and there's a couple bright moments, Deborah and Barack, but generally, the pattern of Gideon is the pattern. And the pattern continues when we look at Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. But we praise you that the story didn't end there, that you promised in Ezekiel, you gave the Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah a promise of a new covenant, that you were going to renew the covenants that you made with Adam and with Abraham. You were going to not just renew them, but honor them through sending the perfect Israelites, through sending the perfect king, through sending the perfect judge, through sending the perfect prophet, through sending the perfect priest. All that is rolled up into one person who we praise and honor today. We thank you that we get to come and participate in this meal. And I pray that during this season of Lent, we just remember that we came from dust and we'll return to dust, but thanks be to God that we have a Savior. And we have a gospel, a good news that says that that's not the end of the story. May that be our posture this season. And may we be ready for Good Friday to come and just weep at the cross and the brokenness of our sin and then celebrate on Easter Sunday. God, we give you all the praise and all the glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.